thanks to our malt mates at Cryer Malt. This is Beer is a Conversation. I'm Matt Kirkegaard. This week, we chat with Sean Sherlock from Newcastle's Foghorn Brewhouse. I can't believe we haven't featured Sean before. Actually, I can, because we have wanted to chat with Sean for some time now, but we're waiting for a chance for Pete and I to head down to Newcastle to visit the growing scene down there, and Sean was obviously a major reason for us wanting to do that. While that trip hasn't happened yet, what prompted the chat to take place now was the announcement at the end of January that Founders First has invested in the brewery, buying out co-founder James Garvey's share of the business. Last week we heard from Mark Hazeman from Founders First, and this week we discussed the partnership with Sean himself. Of course, that's far from all we chat about. In this episode, we go way back to the days before Facebook beer pages, before ubiquitous craft breweries, to a time before craft beer was even called craft beer, to learn how this aspiring academic fell in love with homebrew and changed his career course forever. We hear about his career at Murray's before deciding to set out on his own at Foghorn and what he has learned along the way. As always, it's a great chat with, and I hope he won't be offended by this as he is younger than me, I believe, one of the old men of craft beer. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sean Sherlock, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Well, mate, look, it, it, this is a, a well and truly uh, overdue conversation. Um, nominally, we're here to have a little bit of a chat about the recent changes at Foghorn, but you know, as, as somebody who has been a, a like a, a huge um, sort of uh, presence in, in in my beer career, I I'm, can't believe that we haven't spoken to you. So we might go back to uh, to where it all began, if that's okay. Yeah, no worries at all. Well, Sean, tell us a little bit about, um, now, I guess anyone who has been drinking beer for longer than five minutes would recall your time at uh, Murray's, um, and that's where you, I think, really made a name for yourself, but how did you get into beer in the first place? Oh, look, like, you know, seven-eighths probably of the uh, Australian, and for that matter, international craft beer scene, uh, certainly people that I've met over the years, I got into into beer and brewing uh, through the homebrew world. Um, I started brewing beers under the house uh, with my old man back in the day, back in the very late 80s. And um, we brewed our share of really horrible beers. But I just, <laughs> something, something about the, um, just the process of creating something and, and uh, you know, the process of fermentation and even uh, bizarrely enough, uh, the cleaning and the ritual that you have to go through for bottling and that kind of thing, it really um, struck a chord with me, and I just really enjoyed it as a as a hobby. What got your dad into home? Like, was your dad one of those <laughs> sort of seventies dads who couldn't stand these fizzy cold lagers and wanted something with a little bit more flavour, or what, what? What was the background to to even getting involved at that level? Yeah, look, dad, um, dad drank his share of. The, you know the fizzy uh, you know pale bland uh, lagers through the the seventies and eighties, but he uh, you know without being quite as um, demonstrative demonstrative as that about about it, he um, yeah he sort of tended to to vote with his feet a little bit with with his drinking. He would he would go for the darker ales. Being a Newcastle uh, boy, to his hunter old as it used to be, um, the Hunter Valley's own. Own brew um, was always pretty popular, and Dad was right into um, 
Guinness and uh, Cooper's Best Extra Stouts and, and uh, Sheaf Stout and things like that going back. Darker beers were always pretty prominent and um, and unusually for um, a working class family in Newcastle back in the day, he was also pretty big into wine. So we used to go up to the, the Hunter Valley and um, and visit um, you know wineries and and do tastings. Obviously, I was too young uh, in the in the seventies and early eighties to be doing the tastings, but that uh, would always take us up. It was a real family thing that we did, and we actually did um, some um, sort of small scale bottling. And and um, I think Dad was always you know a little bit interested in the process as well. And so we started. You know, we couldn't uh, get hold of grapes. We couldn't grow grapes in uh, in Waratah West in our backyard, but we could get hold of uh, Cooper's kits and malt extract and sugars and, and those things and start mucking around uh, making beer and and dad dad had done a bit of it um throughout my childhood you know the old stories of, of you know cracking roast barley and filtering it through stockings and all those you know um, homebrew legends um dad did his share of that back in the day and so it was something i'd always watched him do and then as i got a little bit older um you know the classic story of being a student couldn't afford decent beer and, and i really didn't grow up enjoying mainstream beer that much um it, uh, you know, other than your, your darker ales, I grew up drinking dark beer um, and and drinking wine, to be honest. And, and and so, if I wanted to brew something that tasted a bit like Guinness or something that tasted a bit like, you know, Cooper's Best Extra Stout or something like that, uh, we sort of had to do it ourselves because we couldn't always afford them. And that was that was really where it came from, I suppose. Did Did you go on to do uni? Like did, this was when you were younger because you were uh, you went yep. into a homebrew world. So what 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 yep. did you uh, do at uni? Was was it always your plan to get into beer? No, definitely. Uh, to be honest, it was the last thing in my mind that I ever thought that I would end up doing. Um, it was an amazing sort of series of coincidences that saw me end up in the in the crafty world. But I, I initially, when I left school, um, went to uni because um, you know I qualified, but I, I did a general arts degree. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So <laughs> I did, that, that's uh, pretty handy. Uh, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> it. So, um, so I, I fell into a, I did a, a double major in uh, English Lit and Australian History, and uh, and then um, while I was do, while I was there, I was working full time at the local music store. I was actually a, a local musician. I used to play drums in various um, rough and ready indie rock bands in Newcastle back in the late eighties and through the through the nineties. I ended up playing in some sort of pub Irish bands as well. Once I worked out that. Uh, I wasn't going to become the next indie rock star. So, uh, yeah, music initially was my absolute... Yeah, music's probably what I thought I was going to, to do, and I, I put a lot of time and effort into that. But, um, you know, I ended up uh, travelling overseas, and, you know, we had kids and, and music. You're getting home at um, three in the morning, lugging drums into the house and waking babies up and so on became less and less uh, appealing. It's even less um, social than uh, social, yeah. social and brewing. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, I, I uh, drifted back to university, and I ended up um, doing an honours degree, and then um, started a PhD. I got a scholarship, and through that process, I started teaching at the University of Newcastle, um, teaching, you know, the big first year Australian history courses. We had um, uh, our history department was linked to the education department, so a lot of the you know primary. Um, and high school teaching students had to do a, a core component of Australian history as part of their teaching degrees. So we had, you know, 600, 650 student first year intakes and so on. And I used to teach um, those courses and did a lot of tutoring and some of the upper level courses as well. And, and 
you know, actually really enjoyed the whole academic life. I, I, but all all the time through that um, through that whole period, I was brewing at home and, and getting more and more into the brewing from the sort of early 2000s. I really started um, getting more into the all grain brewing and brewing with with grains. I mean, before then, it was a very hard to get the ingredients, and b it was very very hard to get information. Um, it was like a weird secret society, the, the homebrew world. And, um, <laughs> You know the uh, the earlier nineties and and so on. It was, this was you know, before sort of online chat rooms and things yeah, like that. Well and truly, and there were very few books. Even um, it was it was looking back, it's amazing that any of us that came through that period um, brewed a decent beer at all, because it was all this sort of weird hand me down information from someone's grandfather who knew someone's grandpa who knew someone that worked at Tui's and, and they said that if you use backstrap molasses you could produce Guinness and so we all ran off and got ourselves some backstrap molasses and produced something that was absolutely horrible and didn't bear any relation to Guinness and then we'd <laughs> so we'd, we'd scratch that rumour and we'd start again and we'd go and try something else but I guess the what it was good at through that process is, is teaching us the value of experimentation and and understanding your ingredients and your flavours and what did and didn't work. So as we, you know, by the time more books and more, even in Newcastle's case, a local homebrew store opened and we had someone locally who actually had some more information and access to more ingredients and that really gave us another boost and then there was a little, you know, community of us, a little group of us that to get together and, 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 you know, brew and share information and stuff. Some of some of those guys are brewing commercially now. I mean, Keith Gross from Hunter Beer Co. Um, is one of my oldest sort of brewing friends, brewing colleagues from that time. Um, you know, it's, a, it's amazing how many of us sort of came out of that, that world in a funny way. So at what point did you decide to go from that sort of home brewing with limited yep. opportunity in, in, into making it your career? Oh, look, once... Once I really, from the, the very early 2000s on, once I, I got uh, into the all-grain brewing and started, you know, uh, building my own all-grain systems, again, with, with help from people that could weld and, and all that sort of stuff around the place, um, I, I started to take it more and more seriously and I started to win prizes for my beers and I, it sort of dovetailed a little bit with the... Um, I guess some of the academic side of me, the, the passion for research, um, you know, researching beer styles, understanding the history of where stuff came from. Um, I was one of the earlier people um, in, um, well, certainly New South Wales, I think possibly Australia, to do the, the BJCP. Um, we had uh, um, that that, um, that course, we had one guy, I think, was it Andrew Walsh from memory was his name? I, I, I stand corrected if I got that wrong, but he was... He'd been to the States and had done it in the States and qualified and, and was then able to bring that uh, that out to, to train prospective beer judges out here. And, and less so from the beer judging point of view, but more from just really digging down deep into the history of beer styles. And, you know, the, the, the real beer nerd in me came out and I started to, to work my way through the style guidelines, trying to brew everything as perfectly to spec as I could at home <laughs> with the limited gear I had and... And I just brewed and brewed and brewed and brewed and brewed and, and chased down ingredients and, and whatever. And looking back, um, it was a really good training ground in a lot of ways for what you do in a craft brewery. Um, it certainly wasn't a good training ground to run a lab for one of the big breweries or that kind of thing. Uh, but in terms of actually, you know, really understanding flavors and really understanding the process and really, um, you know, it enabled me 
when I started at Murray's to kind of hit the ground running a little bit um, in the sense that I I didn't need the training on the brewing. I just needed um, a bit more of a, a training and an understanding on on the bigger kit and and learning on on the fly as we all did back in the earlier 2000s on how to um, you know uh, develop a craft brand and a craft brewery. A lot of that is the people that went through that period will tell you it really was learning on on the go. But uh, yeah, it was a good time. But I guess there weren't even, I mean, in terms of um, fulfilling, you're in a geek um, or you're in a beer nerd, you know, sort of uh, having yep. the style guidelines and trying to replicate that and nail styles. Um, you wouldn't have had access to, particularly in Newcastle, I'd imagine, you wouldn't have had access to bottle shops where you could taste those styles. And uh, I guess the, the next step is there wouldn't have even been breweries that made your aspiration of being a commercial brewer fire even you know what no yeah, i mean going back to that time you're right it was, it was a bit of a uh, you know, compared to what people find now it's almost hard to you know it's, it's <laughs> the risk of sounding horribly old um, <laughs> that's okay it, you're it, on the right it, show it, for that <laughs> it's it's hard to get across to the younger guys and girls now coming into the industry um that are so passionate and so knowledgeable and and they've They've grown up with bottle shops and uh, and brew pubs and and craft beer bars with you know, huge selections. And when they've started to brew, they've had you know their choice of uh, thirty different malts and you know thirty different hops <laughs> and whatever. You know, in a way that um, it's hard to get across to them just how different the world was um, not that long ago, really. Um, but strangely enough, in Newcastle, compared to um, even my experience in Sydney, for example. Um, we actually had some decent bottle shops here, uh, even going back to those days. We had some really, you know, Newcastle's got a pretty strong um, beer culture and it's got a, you know, the people were always interested in, in different beers, particularly imported beers. And uh, for reasons I can't quite explain, Newcastle always had a really strong, uh, like even uh, quite a lot of bottle shops would have a lot of German beers and, and not just your, your really, you know, mainstream German beers, but they'd have... Um, you know, the pull on a box and things like that, you'd have um, access to some different styles that, you know, you weren't finding everywhere. And even some of the, um, you know, the, the really early um, Belgian styles that came across, things like Leffer Blonde and so on, you could find in shops relatively early. And then as the Australian sector started to grow, um, little creatures, um, you know, made a... A mark, and, and probably even a little bit before that, um, the really like in the really early days of um, Dave and Cam doing their stuff down with Mountain Goat, um, for reasons again, I I haven't sat down with with Dave and asked him, but I, I, for some reason that beer in the very early times with Mountain Goat, some of their earlier bottlings seemed to find it to Newcastle, and so we would um, you know have access to that that kind of stuff. But what, um, what, was that Warner's? Because that was always one of the sort of best bottle shops in the country. Did yep, it, right. uh, uh, does it go back to, to those days? No, this is even before then. Wow. Uh, we, had a, okay. uh, we had a bottle shop on uh, Beaumont Street, Hamilton, which is one of the, the key sort of restaurant strips in Newcastle still today, and, and it, it was run by a really far-sighted woman who stocked some really interesting beers for the time and a, a really wide range. Unfortunately, some of those beers would then sit on the shelf and be horribly stale by the time you got them, but it was still... You know, it was always uh, great to walk in and see what they had, and she was always interested in um, in sourcing new beers as they as they became available. Um, and one up at, at Gahiba, which is a really 
bizarre place for a, a craft beer bottle shop. Obviously, most of your audience don't know Newcastle, but it's a very small suburb. It's an old mining village, and of all of all places to have a, a very yeah you know, very working class, but of all places to have a really good craft beer bottle shop. That bottle owner had um, some great beers. That's when we were doing the BJCP, for example, when we were doing the, the um, training for that and then doing the exams. That's, we were sourcing beers through there, and that uh, that bottle shop owner was was really good chasing stuff down for us when we'd ask him. And, um, yeah, there's a, there were a few around. But, you know, it, it certainly wasn't like it is today. Um, and, and the big, I guess the big thing for me was when I travelled and back in 95, 96, so going back a bit further again. But I, I And that's what really sparked my brewing um, in a big way was I went to Belgium. And I, I coming out of Newcastle, I knew very little about Belgian beer, very, very little. I think I tried Stella Artois, that was about it. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, back in '95, you know, and we were we were living in Ireland, and uh, we we were over there for quite a while, and we we travelled across the Belgium uh, through France, um, and just got out at um, you know the, the very first hostel we walked into had a bar with I think it was 20 different beers, and 15 of those were draft. And in 1995, the hostel with a bar um, was a little bit unusual. Anyway, yeah, tell uh, kids me, today me, that, and they just won't believe you. <laughs> exactly, and, then, um, and the, uh, I walked in. I didn't recognise any of the beers. And he said, "What do you drink?" I said, "Oh, dark beer. You know, dark beers are my favourite beers." And he said, "I'll try this, and it's what I now know to be Chimay Blue." Um, and that was my first. That was my introduction to proper Belgian beer. And my mind was blown. And things of uh, my love of, of experimenting in Belgian styles and, and that sort of thing is, is really stems from there and has, has never gone away. They're still still my favourite. Used to play around with uh, playing with Belgian Belgian yeast. So. That were the challenges of de- developing a love, and it's something that again I'd sort of really relate to um, based on my own experience. But what yep. was it that gave you the you know, gee, I like beer, I make it, I can actually make a yep. living in this. You know, how did that come about? Um, two things. I had um, a really supportive partner. Um, we just had um, our first child. I think our second one was. Actually, no, she was just on 12 months. So we had both, both the girls, but she'd seen me just spending more and more time obsessing over this brewing in the backyard and getting more and more technical with the recipes and sourcing the ingredients. And it just was really starting to, to take over my life in a way. And does she, she really drink beer out of, just out of interest? Yeah. <laughs> yes, she does. Okay. Um, and bizarrely, her favourite beer style is uh, Belgian dip beer, and it's the one beer I really can't stand and I don't brew. <laughs> 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 after all these, uh, after all that about Belgian styles, Belgian dip's not really my thing. But every now and then, I'll, I'll, I'll brew one for her just to, uh, to keep her happy. But no, she, yeah, she, the only beers that she's not a big fan of as a general rule are the, the uh, stronger IPAs. But she loves the big stouts and uh, the Belgian styles in particular. She's a fan of. But um, yeah, she really backed me in and really encouraged me to start looking at whether I could get some experience. And the only local brewery at the time. Um, that was of a scale to offer any experience was the now defunct Blue Kung Brewery. Um, it had just started um, a year or so before this time. This is I'm talking around 2003, I guess, 2004, something like that. And um, it had been around for a year or two by then. Um, and uh, they, yeah, you know, I, I remember writing a um, an email. Uh, actually, I think I wrote a letter. I, think I, I was going to say, was it an email at that stage? Or? Yeah, no, I think I actually sent a proper letter, now I think about it, to um, to Bruce Pucci, who I now know uh, through the industry, that 
but he was uh, head brewer there at the time. I, I had no contact with him at all. And just on spec, I, sent, I just wrote a letter um, saying, you know, who I was, what my background was, and, uh, and that I was really keen to, to get some experience. And um, they invited me in for an interview. And um, I remember just walking around the brewery with stars in my eyes at the time. Um, and in the end, the only, the only shifts that they had were the night shifts, which... And that, you know, night shifts with a small family, and when I was uh, at that time earning a decent coin in the academic world, um, it sort of tested the passion a little bit. And in the end, I, I, I didn't jump um, in that area. But I then, not long after, um, you know, Graham Mahi was in contact with me from the very early Murray's days. And um, he'd been there overseeing the setup of the actual original brew system at Taylor's Arm. And, um, you know, I went up and uh, gave him some of my beers and so on. And in the end, um, he offered me an opportunity up there. And at that time, Murray's was, what were they, about seven months old or eight months old, something like that. I think they started in, they well, first beers were January 2006. I think, it, I think it was New Year's Day. And this would have been sort of July, August, we were having these conversations. And uh, went up there. Um, yeah, we got offered a position, um, took a real risk. I mean, no one knew who Murray's was, no one knew where Taylor's arm was. I certainly had no experience up there, but uh, again, my partner just backed me in and said, it's now or never, um, you'll, you'll regret it if you don't take the chance. And I took the chance. We moved the family up um, up there to the mid-north coast of New South Wales. We lived in Mbucca Heads and drove in and out the 40 kilometres each way to Taylor's arm in the, in the middle of the hills and um, behind Maxville there. And yeah, it was, it was a great experience. And and, and so, how did you uh, did did you initially start commercially brewing under somebody, or did you go in and replace uh, you know and fill fill the, uh, the 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 gap? I think it's um it was Graham Murray um, who was the, the the brewer there back. Well, Gra- Graham Mahi, um, he was Mahi. originally from yeah, he's originally from New Zealand, um, and he was the original head brewer there. And now I I went and started under him, um, and it was. Uh, it was great. I mean, Graham was a, a really, or still is, a very, very good brewer um, and a really, really good guy. He was a good uh, teacher to me in terms of the, you know, the bigger scale in that brewery. Um, you know, I, I didn't have experience with uh, the bigger tanks and the bigger, you know, uh, transfers under pressure and uh, filtering and those kinds of things. And he was uh, a really good and patient uh, teacher in the very early days with that. But equally, we weren't brewing an enormous amount in the very early days. And I think in some ways that helps too because I, I could get in there and take that little bit of time in that first sort of six months or so really learning uh, learning the scale of the equipment uh, as opposed to what I was doing at home. And um, and that, that kind of helped. But pretty soon, as we did with Murray's, we did everything in a hurry. And uh, yeah, we bought a bottling line. Which again, for the standards of the day, it was a it was a really high quality piece of kit, um, and I still remember you know, them trying to get it in to where we were, this brewery, in the, literally in the middle of nowhere, in the in the hills behind Maxville, and yeah, you know, the forklift getting bogged with the, the the bottling line hanging off the end of it, and you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. Um, it was a it was sort of a, a crazy time, but we yeah, we got it in there, and and then yeah, so learning. Uh, packaging and and so on. Um, yeah, it was it was a really good experience early on, and Graham um, was a a big part of my transition into the industry. So. How hard was it to even get a bottling line, like a, a decent bottling line, for a small regional brewery in those days? Yeah, not easy. Um, I mean, <laughs> it, 
and um, and expensive. Like, I mean, not that uh, brewing equipment is cheap these days, but there is much more competition in the market. There's um, you know there's so many different uh, options in terms of um, sourcing and, and purchasing equipment back then. You know, it, it wasn't impossible. Obviously, we were able to do it, but it was you know finding um, so it was often through um, the wine trade in the way that there's now you know dedicated brewing and not just brewing but craft brewing um, suppliers and so on. They were in their infancy back then. Um, so finding the bottling line, it was um, it was an Italian line that we sourced from memory through Australian winemakers, and we had the guys come out from Italy to help us with the install and. Um, they again it, for a, a city boy that grew up in Newcastle like me, Taylor's arm seemed like the end of the world almost. Um, I can only imagine for these guys from Italy uh, what it must have <laughs> seemed like. We, you know, we we had cattle at the back fence of the brewery. We had um, it was a village of fifty people. It was the most unlikely place to start a, a brewery that's become. Um, you know the, what, what Murray's has become, um, and yet, yeah, in, in a way, it was a great place to start because we we had no distractions. We just put our heads down and and brewed what we wanted to brew. Um, it was a really really good experience. And and Murray's was one of those breweries that in the early days, of Pete Mitchum and I were talking on uh, the, the podcast recently that you know in the early days of the hottest one hundred, for example, it just yeah. dominated. Yeah, well, I mean, we we were um, uh, one of the breweries that really took on some of the the styles like you know not just ipas but double ipas and imperial ipas and imperial stouts and and bigger uh belgian styles and, and those kinds of things we were one of the earlier um oak ages with beer our anniversary ales um, that we do each year um were always um, oak aged and and sellers for an extended period of time before release and and things that are really common now, um, we were one of the earlier brewers doing it. And um, and some of that, I think, um, really, you know, you need to put that down um, as a big credit point to, to Murray Howe himself, who was the, the owner of the business. I mean, he he allowed um, initially Graham um, and then me, I, I took over from Graham a couple of years after I started there. Um, we, we were still at Taylor's Arm at the time and, and, and quite a small brewery was before Murray's moved to where it is now at Port Stephens near Newcastle. And, yeah, he really um, really backed us in, certainly backed me in um, to really brew um, what I wanted to brew. Uh, and, and you know, I think we repaid that with some pretty good beer and some pretty interesting and innovative beer. And so, yeah, it's, it's, all, it's interesting these days with the, the Hottest 100. I look at that and think back that, yeah, the first couple, uh, Murray's were all over it. We had... Um, had, I think five beers or six beers or something in the in the first couple, and mm. I think well, I think Icon Double IPA I think made it to number three. I think that's as high as we made it. But, but um, yeah, it was um, they were good times. But it was a brewery that really um, sort of you know converted a lot of people to, to to craft beer and you know push was the first to do a whole range of uh, interesting styles. Yep, um, and we really prided ourselves on that. We were trying to do. Yeah, we the whole focus, and it still is my focus of what I'm doing here at Foghorn, really. But we we wanted to have a point of difference in what we did, um, but we still wanted to have uh, and maintain sort of quality and drinkability. And and what I mean by that is, um, you know, we would take what for those days at least was sort of seemed like quite extreme styles, or doing you know really really hop driven beers, or really you know we brew imperial stouts with over 20% roast barley and things like that, which, again, to your, to your 
brewing listeners that'll make sense, maybe to the non-brewers that won't, but that's that's an enormous amount of roast barley for an imperial stout, particularly for an imperial stout, you know, uh, 10 years or so ago um, in, in the Australian scene. Um, but we always wanted to do it uh, with a sense of balance involved and, and the ability to finish, uh, you know, finish a glass and feel like another one. And I think that really held the brand in good stead because we'd, we'd always do some some fun things and some some interesting things, but we didn't sort of too often let ourselves get sucked into the, you know, being different for difference's sake. There was always a really fo- strong focus on quality and drinkability. And, uh, yeah, I think that's that's a really important really important thing. Uh, it's pretty basic. If you're going to sell beer, you need people to buy it. Um, and then it, uh, if you want people to buy it, it helps if they can buy it more than once. <laughs> so. Was there any one thing that you learned at Murray's that you've taken with you, given that it was your first commercial brewing job? Um, was there anything particularly that you can identify that you've, you've, you've carried with you since, since you left and uh, taken to your own brewery? Um, everything. I mean, I... Uh, an enormous amount. I, I treated when I was brewing at, at Murray's. Um, like I said, I took over as, as head brewer. Um, uh, would have been 2008, I think, um, or halfway through it, 2008, something like that. Uh, Graham moved back to New Zealand, and we were just at the start of what became a really steep growth curve. We we grew that brand very quickly from that point on, and we went went through the move to Port Stephens. Um, you know, Graham had left a really really good base, um, and we took that and and really really grew and we started brewing so many different beers and so many different styles. Um, at various points, we were doing you know a, a brand new draft and a brand new packaged beer um, every month, month on month, um, as well as you know maintaining the standard lines and and so on. We really there was there was a period there, particularly when we just first moved to Port Stephens, where it was a really experimental time and it was it was a great experience. Very very hectic, very, very bit stressful at times, but it was, but it was good. But I mean, in terms of things I learned from Murray's, the key thing is work ethic. Uh, you, you, you absolutely have to commit to this trade. If you're going to, if you're going to, to go into brewing, don't go into brewing because you think it's going to be a, an easy or, or glamorous life. There's nothing easy or glamorous about it. Um, there's lots of great experiences that come with it, but you know, the, the, the successful brewers in my experience are the people that work the hardest. Um, and, Certainly, my experience there was to just shut up and play my guitar, you know, put my head down, brew the best beer I could brew and just um, let everything else kind of look after itself. And I've, I've taken a fair bit of that approach into starting my own business. And it's been a yeah, very different, a very different set of challenges in starting a, a new business from um, working for somebody else. But, um, but yeah, I learned a lot of lessons through that probably too long for this podcast to get to the lessons all that together. Well, maybe we'll, when we come to our uh, lessons uh, from the Brewer series, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get you back on. But uh, so, so you, you did mention, like, you, you now have your own uh, uh, brewery. What, what, what Was it the desire to have your own place or was it the desire to move on? What led you to move on from Murray's when you were so closely identified um, with it? Yeah, um, a really major part of it was just wanting to be part of my own business. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who's fully motivated by um, the financial side of things. It's not like uh, not, not many people go into brew pubs <laughs> or, or craft brewing to, to, um, to make a fortune. That's certainly not it. But I, I really, um, it sounds kind of corny, but I just really believe in uh, my beers um, and I really 
wanted to take the risk of um, backing backing that rather than working for somebody else. Um, at the time, there was no um, no issue at all between myself and Murray, and, and I'm really thankful to the you know the fact that he gave me the opportunity, and and we really did some really good things together I think I mean it's nice to hear you say that talking about some of the you know the firsts and the early things that we did I mean there's there's a lot of love for the Murray's brand out there and so there should be it's a, it's a really good brand um you know I just wanted to have a go at something different and I wanted to um wanted to start my own business and I also was really intrigued or really passionate about the brew pub model you know a lot of what we were doing at Murray's was uh certainly by the time I left we were brewing quite a a big volume of beer, uh, certainly big volume for those times. Um, I left in 2014, and we were we were brewing quite a lot of beer then. And and uh, look, a lot of it was being packaged, a lot of it was being bottled and sold through the big chains and so on, which is which is great. Um, I just found that I kept looking at the overseas brew pub models and looking at the stuff online and thinking, you know, maybe that's more me than the big uh, the bigger packaging side of things and. And I really wanted to test myself and see whether, you know, my beers could actually sustain a business or not. <laughs> it was, was, uh, was, yeah, a little bit reasons that are hard to explain uh, in, in sensible terms when you look at what was a growing brand and a very strong brand to walk away from that to start a small group up in Newcastle um, seemed odd to a lot of people at the time and probably still does, but it. Um, yeah, it was what I was passionate about doing, and I, I just wanted to be my own boss, I guess. So, well, and uh, I, I guess in, in a way, um, you've become your own boss, but at the same time, as we learned recently, uh, you know, that wasn't without its challenges um, when your partner um, decided that he wanted to, uh, to, to to move on and do something else. So, yep. maybe we can sort of start with how the brewery came about, how you sort of met your business partner, and, uh, you know, what you were looking for when, when you uh, set up Foghorn. Yeah, I'd been looking at locations around Newcastle uh, just for a period of time. Um, I really wanted something as close to the CBD as possible. Um, one of the one of the lessons I'd learnt from Murray's having brewed um, in some, well, initially a very remote location, really, um, uh, by beer standards, and then even at, at Port Stephens, they're still a little bit out of town. I thought that that's fine for the model that Murray's were pursuing, but for a brew pub, you really need some population around you. Um, and Newcastle's my town, and I, I wanted to move as close to the CBD. Um, and I'd met James through Murray's. He um, was a partner in the Newcastle Regional Airport bar, and Murray's sold a bit of beer um, through that airport bar there for a while. I think that and was one of the that, first times that I got really excited going to an airport because <laughs> most airports have such a... Uh, Dread, you know, sorry, they, 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 they've got a dreadful selection. They don't have a wide selection, and uh, no. particularly of beers that represent the place that it comes from. And uh, you go to um, Newcastle, and they had Murray's on, which was a, which was a real exciting find. Yeah, and, and in classic, you know, sort of craft beer form, I, I remember, you know, helping them hook up the beer system and, and, and <laughs> hand, deli- hand delivering the kegs and making sure the pressures were right and, and that, that kind of thing. It was, yeah, I mean, it, it was an exciting thing. You know, it was, again, uh, we did a lot of, maybe you couldn't say they're absolute firsts, but we were sort of certainly early in a lot of the things we did at Murray's and that was, that was one of them. And yeah, I mean, again, that's a real testament to Murray and his belief in his brand that, you know, he was prepared to, to back it to go into something like an airport. I mean, an airport bar is a difficult place to sell craft beer. People are, 
are often just wanting a drink before they get on the plane. You know, I remember when we first put the beers on, they actually took um, all of the, the mainstream lines out. There was a near riot. So they ended up putting uh, Forest Gold back in the fridge in bottles. Um, but they still, all the draft beer there uh, for a while was, was Murray's. And, you know, slowly but surely we really picked it up. And they, we ended up selling quite a bit of beer through that. But, um, but yeah, anyway, James was the one of the partners in that. And um, he... Uh, came across the building that we're now in. Um, he, um, it was a derelict building, um, and he was up for lease. And he uh, sort of gave me a call and said, "You want to come in and have a look at this building?" And I'd been looking at, a, at another building, in a much smaller building uh, that I was looking at doing semi-independently. Um, you know, it was with another guy, but it was going to be a smaller brewery all around. And and that was in, an, in another suburb in Newcastle, close to the city, but not in the suburb there. And then I. I you know, came to this building and it just it just all made sense to me when I looked at it. I could see that this, the building itself was really well located. Um, it was big enough that we could put a decent brewery into it and have a good you know restaurant and and get to a scale where both the front of house or restaurant side of the business and the brewing side of the business could uh, make enough money to keep us sustainable. You know, a few things like that. Um, and then James's background, um, you know, he, he has a development background um, and uh, he was really crucial in terms of, you know, being able to drive, getting stuff through council and, and all of those sorts of approval processes. You know, I tended to handle the, you know, the, the excise licence uh, and that sort of stuff. Um, but in terms of the development um, applications, the you know, getting the you know, the power and water connected and getting it approved, that kind of thing. That was, um, you know, really something that James was really strong in. And it, it was just a good opportunity, I thought, for our two skill sets to come together and produce something pretty good. And I, I really think we have. I'm really proud. Uh, I'm not sure if you've actually been to Foghorn or not. but um, Yeah, mate, I, I sneak in. I never make a big thing when I sort of uh, come to places because I like to sort of sneak in and get the... Um, the beer drinker experience, yeah, cool. not not the yeah, access all areas to us. So, I, in fact, I think when I did come in, I uh, you know Instagrammed a photo later, and uh, you sort of commented that I should have uh, let, let you know I was there. Give me a shout. Yeah, that's I, the end of that, right? We, we will be down. Uh, Prof and I will be uh, doing a bit of a swing through the, the the area, so we'll definitely let you know in advance of that. Yeah, cool. I'd love to have you. Um, but yeah, so uh, but you, you you were saying uh, that you, you're very proud of the venue. Yeah, I'm really proud of it. It's 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 what it's a, to a large degree uh, what I had in in my mind um, for a, a brew pub. It's probably slightly bigger than even I thought of at the time. It is quite a big space. I was surprised um, at how big it was when I when I came in because uh, yeah, look, it, it it's it's a really um, you know it, it's a real hospitality venue. It's not a little brew pub. It's a you know a, a, a big venue. The venue itself, I mean, it's 250 seat um, for the restaurant side of things, and that that. Um, you know, is is a real you know challenge to run a kitchen um, and to run yeah you know, to make sure everything's uh, ticking you know, with you know with a, a business that size. Um, we've you know had uh, some really good luck with the managers and and chefs and so on that we've been able to attract, and we've had um, you know pretty good running very early on when we first opened the doors. It was an absolute you know baptism by fire for sure. We had uh, <laughs> we had some. Uh, some real issues there in the first, um, you know, first few months. Just, I think, more than anything, just um, getting used to the scale of, of the venue from that hospitality point of view. Um, the beer side of things, it still seemed small to me at the time because I was used to being part of producing bigger volumes. Um, and the brewery that we put in um, 
can handle uh, you know the volume that we need to for a venue our size uh, quite easily. So that was that was really good. But just getting getting your head around the day to day issues with managing kitchens and particularly kitchen size that we have. And when I say managing kitchens, I'm not uh, I'm certainly not the head chef and I'm not the direct line manager in that kitchen. There's no way uh, I could do that as well as doing the brewery. We've got some really good. Uh, but good it's people. your name above the door, whereas, uh, and I guess that's, I'm guessing that that's one of the things that stepping out of Murray's, where you were the head brewer um, and you were responsible yep. for the beer and all aspects of beer production and distribution and quality and those sorts of things to step in and have uh, a hospitality venue that with it, with those expanding responsibilities, that, that must have been a huge challenge. Yes, it was. And it was a real learning curve for me. Um, Still learning, definitely. I wouldn't say uh, I've completely got it sussed yet, but um, it's it's been good. I mean, it's been good to step out of that role a little bit. I mean, to be honest, it took me a little while um, to really understand um, how much I needed to step out of that role. Um, I think possibly my step out of the brewery and in, into other roles. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm someone who likes to manage by, you know, sort of, example and, and putting good people in and, and, and letting them you know, letting them own their, their area rather than sort of micromanaging from, from above. And I think sometimes in hospitality a lesson I've I've learnt is um, you know, a little bit of micromanaging sometimes goes a long way. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> it, sometimes it's uh, you know, it needs to happen and, and but that's that's all been part of the fun, part of the, the challenge of getting um, getting a venue like this up and running and, and getting it successful. And it what's I mean, it was a frustrating thing to me um, a little bit that when um, the sale process was made public, and which was really about James, who had also bought the building that we're in by that stage. Initially, um, he wasn't the owner of the building. We had a lease, but um, about half, well, two years or so ago, um, the building came up for sale and he bought the building. And um, when he's got some other opportunities um, that he was wanting to pursue. He, he'd sort of, he, he's someone who likes to build things and then move on a little bit, I think, sometimes. Were, were you aware of that when you went into a partnership with him? Oh, not at that level of detail, <laughs> though. But, um, but uh, look, I, again, I, I've had, uh, you know, I, I couldn't have done what I've done here. I didn't have the pockets to, to fund um, what we've done here, and James was absolutely critical to it. And certainly the type of venue, separate... Separate to the investment, um, you know, when I borrowed all the money I could borrow and invested uh, really heavily in it, and we went into it, you know, in a partnership. But his experience in dealing with councils and dealing with authorities and, and those sorts of things uh, was invaluable. And and watching what he did um, and learning some of those um, some of those things has been again, it's been a, a really good part of my learning curve. I think. Well, certainly I know a lot more now or I'll have a better idea now about starting a business and about starting, you know, dealing with um, authorities and so on um, than I did when I jumped into it from uh, from Murray's in 2014, that's for sure. How did the conversation start or how did you feel when the when, when James came to you and said, look, mate, um, it's been fun, but... <laughs> yeah, look... Um, well, was that how the conversation went? Or was it like... <laughs> oh, yeah, more, more, more or less. I mean, he... Um, <laughs> Look, he uh, had become um, less involved day to day in the um, overall running of the business. So, in terms of his um, direct input on site over every little issue um, that, that crops up from day to day, that had been sort of winding down for a period of time. I mean, uh, he 
don't get me wrong, he's still very, very involved. Um, and the business hasn't settled yet. Settles on the 28th. He's still very involved. But um, it wasn't sort of from a day-to-day operational point of view, it, it wasn't uh, that sort of major issue. From my point of view, I just knew that I was committed to what we were doing here. Um, and I, I initially investigated every opportunity I could to raise capital to initially try and, and buy him out myself uh, in terms of the business. But I, I couldn't uh, get near the amount of money involved um, for the building as well. So we ended up uh, going through the sale process. Um, and from my point of view, yeah, I, I can't say that I love the sale process. That's It's a really difficult thing to be part of something that you're not in, you know, an owner of something that ultimately you're not in direct control over. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, James, but James has got through the process and um, the people that were bidding um, were all, um, pretty much all, certainly the serious bidders by the time we got to the end of the expressions of interest stage. Uh, the people that were still involved at that point um, were all really keen uh, to partner with me and to keep the brewery going and, and to you know, ultimately help grow the brand and, and, and grow the brewery, which is what I wanted to do. So, um, you know, in the end, um, yeah, I could have sold my shares and walked away um, and tried to start again, or I could have, you know, could, could have taken another a number of options. But I, I'm just really committed to what we've done here and I'm really proud of what we've done here. Uh, and business is you know, has been better um, now than pretty much uh, any time since we started. Um, I think the future for the whole thing is really bright. And so I was, you know, um, really happy to, um, to to commit and to, you know, to invest in what will be the new the new entity going forward. And, um, yeah, it's, it's exciting times. It, it sounds like it's been a positive experience or, you know, as positive as, as the any change experience can be. But if you were going back to pre-Foghorn days or if you were speaking to somebody who was looking at starting a brewery in partnership, yep. um, I mean, I, I can imagine this could have been a much more fraught process for you. Um, you know, were there things that you would have done differently in terms of setting up a, a partnership in um, making agreements? Or, you know, is there advice you would give to somebody in, in a similar situation about what they need to do, you know, pre signing on the dotted line um, about making sure the partnership works or that there are plans for if the partnership uh, has to dissolve? Yeah, I think um, I think part of the reason that um, things are, are working out well from my personal end, and this I just want to sort of preface this by saying there isn't any issue between myself and James. Um, he's just wanting to move on and, and that's... Mm. that's uh, the way it goes, it's not like there's um, any sort of you know bad blood or anything here, or there's any uh, any issues there. And and also, like and I think that's been the, fairly clear through the process. But I, you know, yeah. and that's why I sort of say, look, you know, in in other circumstances, I could imagine that it it, it could go worse than it has for you. Yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure in in a more hostile circumstance, it could have. But I think that comes to answering the other part of your question. Um, I was really clear in going into business with James, um, I had some really uh, good advice and spent some money on getting shareholder agreements set up and uh, and, uh, and to his credit, James was um, really keen on getting all that kind of thing done correctly as well. So that when you know, we had things in place to, you know, I wouldn't say we had a, an exit strategy as such drawn up, but certainly there were things in, in our shareholder agreement from day one that meant Things had to be structured in certain ways um, if one partner wanted to move on, or uh, and so on and so forth. I took advice, which I now 
uh, look back on and and see that I did the right thing and the advice was 100% right. Um, that not to just jump at the first um, opportunity and say, oh yeah, whatever, just just make it happen. Um, actually, you know, get get your, your legal structures right, get your um, your agreements in place um, because it just means you don't know what's what will or won't happen in the future. And, and this is well, we you know from four years or over four years down the track from when we were signing these agreements. So it's not like um, it, it ha- you know, there's been a, a change overnight. Um, it's been a, a lengthy enough process. But um, yeah, getting those agreements in place at the start certainly has helped both myself and Jane through this process going forward now. And, and I'm really excited with the new um, the Founders First team that um, I'm partnering with now. I mean, again, they're... Uh, we're uh, getting our agreements right at the at the moment, um, and we're uh, looking at um, you know, doing some really exciting things out of here. And they're and they're really looking at um, at helping you know fund uh, and and back me and back our brand, um, and then helping us uh, grow. Basically, injecting a little bit more capital into the business to help us. Um, you know, step out of uh, the brew pub a little bit, maybe start to develop some some wholesale branding and, and that kind of thing, which is which is exciting. And just before we move on to founders first, and I, I spoke to Mark Hazeman yesterday, um, so okay, sure. sort of, uh, we, we've had, got the both ends of the uh, conversation going. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you said that there were you went out to expressions of interest, and there were a number of uh, interested. Uh, in investors, Can, yep. w- without identifying any of them uh, particularly, you know, w- w- was there a class of them? Were there sort of private equity groups, you know, like Founders First, or were they individuals um, w- w- with with an interest in uh, investing in a brewery? It was it was a really wide spectrum of people, to be honest, um, and wide spectrum of, of groups. There was some existing um, uh, people I knew from the industry. Um, there were some people uh, totally from left field. That um, and some um, groups that you wouldn't have thought would be uh, interested in this kind of venture, but were there were some um, people with strong experience in the hospitality game, um, hotels, that kind of thing. It was a really wide and interesting group. It was, it was if, if you could, you know, you know, I can now from a distance, but sort of separating myself from the emotional attachment of the of, of that actual process or, or of that time. It was kind of a little bit um, humbling that so many people were that interested and were and were prepared to to um, you know put the effort in to do all that due diligence and to you know look at at partnering with us. I think it, it was a really strong thumbs up for what we've done with the business here. Um, yeah, we have built something really good, and it's um, just putting my regional player hat on for a minute. It's a real strong thumbs up for Newcastle and for the growth of Newcastle. We had you know a range of people both from inside the city and from without, that, um, you know, really looking at, uh, at helping uh, a local small business grow and looking at uh, investing in, in the town and in the future. I think the view of Newcastle 15, 20 years ago might not have seen such um, interest. Let's put it that way. It's, uh, it's a sign that things are changing and that people can really see a good future for the area. Amongst the, the, the options you had, did you uh, ever consider going down the uh, crowdsource funding with an, you know, like an equity crowdfunding model or it, was, it wasn't something that you needed to consider, it sounds like? Yeah, to be honest, no, I didn't. Um, and I think, again, with the, um, the building involved in, as part of the, the process, um, well, you know, as part of the sale, I think the, the, 
the dollars that were needed would uh, you know pretty pretty high at Ogan. And I and to be honest, I personally don't know enough about the crowdfunding model to uh, to have really committed to that. I think um, it was uh, you know I looked looked from afar at what um, uh, Brewdog has done, and then looked. Um, a little bit more recently at uh, Endeavour and at, uh, at Black Ops, and, and have a, a bit of an understanding of, of the, the, you know, the, the benefits and the, and the costs with that sort of a model. But um, I didn't really investigate it closely myself, and I don't think James did either. Okay, so and that brings us to Founders First. What what was it? It sounds like you did have, uh, you know, it, it, it sounds like you had a couple of people wanting to fill your dance card. Um, yep. What, what was it about Founders First that uh, saw them uh, be the successful suitor? Yeah, well, initially um, it was that they were one of the um, most serious bidders in, t- in terms of the process after the expressions of interest. Um, and then meeting uh, meeting them and talking with them, they were the thing that they were most interested in um, was working with me and working with uh, building the brand, um, but not coming in saying um, that, you know, we've got all these ideas and this is what we think uh, will work and uh, wanting to sort of impose something, you know, a, a model from the outside. Their their um, their approach is to basically back um, good people doing good things and help them, you know, achieve those things and help them grow. Um, their um, their approach was that the you know the venue itself is great. Um, we're already doing you know a whole lot of uh, really good stuff here, and they wanted to be a part of that. We, you know, didn't have that extra level of investment between myself and James to really take um, even a draft wholesale approach to to the local um, Newcastle and broader Hunter area. So, you know, really we're a we're a real brew pub and we we sell all our beer through our own taps. We we sell a little bit of beer through venues like the Grain Store and so on locally and the Happy Wombat and a few others, but we don't. You know, we haven't really invested in in getting the draft brand out there and and and. You know, getting the collateral right. You know, things like your decals and your artwork, and your, you know, getting someone on the road to help sell, and, and things like that. Uh, we haven't really done uh, yet in any really meaningful way. And these guys uh, are keen to help uh, help me develop that side of the business. And you know, depending on how that goes, um, you know, down the track we might look at doing some uh, packaging or something too. We'll see. We'll see where we end up. But uh, I think. You know, what appealed to me was that they had um, some people in the tent that had um, some uh, beer background um, and industry background. They've got some people um, who have um, some skills in areas that I'm not strong in, uh, so branding, marketing, that kind of thing, um, which I think will help us um, build our model. But most of all, they were and are, um, you know, not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Um, things uh, are already going well. It's about taking a, a, you know the strengths of what we're doing at the moment, building on that, and hopefully getting in a position where more people can get to try our beer, um, keeping the venue as, as strong as it is in the absolute centre of what we do. Um, but you know maybe building that wholesale brand a little bit more. I guess the risk, yeah, and they, they've got a lot of skills when you look at the the, the panel and the team that they've assembled um, for businesses that want to start looking at you know expanding out of a brew pub footprint. But I guess um, 
the the other side is that the the model that they've got they've uh, sought investment from um, people um, and you know they, they've got a, a horizon of about three years before they're hoping to list um, on the stock exchange and with that is going to come a whole range of I would imagine um, you know business pressures yep. that, that you may not have now um, you know, other than as you said at the start you were never particularly motivated by money um, but there are people now investing in your business that perhaps are a little bit more <laughs> Yeah, well, you could probably speak to uh, Murray and James about the frustrations of working with somebody that's not as motivated by money as they might like. Oh, I might speak <laughs> to anybody that I've ever worked that, that's ever worked for Brews News. It's uh, <laughs> they'll feel um, the, the same pain. But um, you know, look again. Don't get me wrong. I'm not um, uh, setting myself up as some sort of um, uh, total purist here. This is an industry and it is a business, obviously, and and we need to be profitable and and we need and and i'm i'm excited by by growth and i'm excited by the journey that comes with that um that's that was one of my favorite experiences with murray's was being part of a brand that started literally you know brewing you know forty thousand liters a year to you know building it up to well over a million by the time i left and 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 being part of that and being part of that growth and being and you know, it's that's that's exciting um and what's been great about this experience for me is it's a different set of a different skill set and it's been you know about building um, a hospitality business as well as a brewery um and i've learned again a lot about areas that i'm strong in and areas that i'm not so strong in which i think um will help uh, this new business going forward um but at the end of the day, you have to back yourself and you have to back what your ultimate strength is. And, and what I think my strength is, is brewing some really good, interesting, full-flavoured, full-bodied, aromatic, high-quality craft beer. And ultimately, that sells to some extent or can, you know, that, that, that's a saleable um, item. And I think, you know, somebody coming in wanting to change that, um, is is killing what is the ultimate heart of the business, and certainly none of the discussions I've had uh, so far uh, with founders have led down that track. If anything, that's more encouragement to uh, to go further and do more. So you know, I, I'm not. I'll deal with that as it as it comes. Um, and you know, we might have a conversation in five years' time that's very different to this one. But <laughs> I, you know, I'm I'm also you know I've been around the industry for a while now. Um, I'm not um, a starry-eyed you know 20 year old getting into my first gig um and you know i think i think uh, i think i'll be right and i think Foglon will be right that's probably as good a place to to, to leave it um at least until uh, pete and i can get down to newcastle and uh you know um maybe even uh, do a podcast from the pub down at foghorn Sounds excellent. We have to get it up on a weekend when Pete can come and watch the storm get beaten by the night. <laughs> it doesn't happen often, but it's going to happen this year. We'll see what we can do. Well, Sean Sherlock, all the very best uh, as things settle with Founders First and uh, all the best with uh, Foghorn in Newcastle. Thanks, Pete. Thank you very much. And that was Sean Sherlock. We also thank our sponsors, Cry Malt, and also Rallings Labels. Brewers, if you are looking for an easier, more effective way to do smaller runs of labels, get in touch with Rallings. If you order printed cans, then you must order a minimum quantity of 60,000 plus. 
Sleeve cans look and feel just like printed cans, but with a smaller minimum order quantity. Labels on cans sometimes really miss the mark if you do not get your design right and can look cheap and unappealing, which means the punter can choose another beer over yours. Rowling's labels, stickers and packaging supply fully sleeved and palletized cans ready to be filled. They will also print and hold the sleeves and supply in batches as needed for each brew to make cash flow and storage easy. Pay for the printing up front and then pay per can and application as needed. We thank Rallings for helping us with the resources we need to keep this podcast going. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation. And we look forward to another conversation next week. Music